We're, uh, we're preaching a sermon series here now on the cross, right? And uh, it's getting pretty good, even though we're just one, one message in. feel pretty good about it. Turn to, uh, if you have a Bible, of course, in, in your notes, I've got all the, all the verses that I'm going to read right there in your notes. In Luke, Luke chapter 23, we'll be starting out there, and I'm going to read several verses. Is everybody awake this morning? I, I'm telling you, this, whenever, they, whenever they get that time going forward about an hour, it's like I'm just I'm running on... Uh, I'm not quite mentally engaged this morning, but pray for me. Amen? Praise God. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Luke 23, verses 32 through 43, and then we'll get into the message together. Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. It says, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's just pray together right quick. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we're just thankful for the opportunity that we get every single week, God, and even throughout every day of our lives to hear from you through your word. And I pray, God, that you would bring it to life. Holy Spirit, that you would use me and speak through me, God, that you would open each of our hearts and each of our minds to receive, God, exactly what you're saying to each of us in this moment. And God, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, you guys ever... um you guys ever get a song stuck in your head? Anybody, you, you ever struggle with that? You just get a song stuck in your head, you just cannot quite get it out? I remember whenever I, was, uh, whenever I first became a Christian, that was a big struggle for me because I listened to a lot of music that just so happened to not be Christian music. But even, and so what you would try to do, I, I, like I listened to a lot of Led Zeppelin, you know, and I didn't even know if there was any good Christian music out there when I first started. So you'd like listen to Led Zeppelin and try to turn some of it into a Christian song. You know what I'm saying? Like Stairway to Heaven, I'd be like, you know, this is kind of Christian. Got the Stairway to Heaven going on and stuff like that. And, and, you know, you do that. But then you find out that there's good Christian music and you get out of that and you stop listening to the old, old stuff that you used to listen to or whatever. But, but every now and then you struggle. Like, for example, you know, here's, here's how you know, though, that it's okay. I got people that come to me a lot of times when they're new Christians and they're like, is it okay for me to listen to this? And, you know, because, I mean, you got people who really like rap music and they're like, you know, that, that beat is just fire. But it, I know that their lyrics aren't, aren't really that good for my relationship with Jesus. And, and they struggle. Anybody, anybody know what I'm talking about out here? You know what I'm talking about, right? So, <laughs> so, so you got that going on, and, and you're dealing with that. And, but let me tell you something. Here's how you know. Here's the secular music test. 
is when you can actually turn a song to make it a Christian song. Like, for example, my pastor, Donald Sims, a wonderful pastor, wonderful man of God. On occasion here recently, there was a time when I was struggling. I was really dealing with something that was aggravating me. And he wanted to edify me. He wanted to encourage me in the Lord. So he sent me a song and he said, listen to this. It'll minister to you. And it happened to be Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. And I'll just be honest with you. In that moment, it felt like a Christian song about Christian perseverance. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, and it just turned right there in a moment of time. I was like, man, this is from God. You know what I'm saying? I got to shake this thing off and just move on, move forward. Praise the Lord. And it, and it benefited me. So you know what? The Lord is so good that sometimes He'll take things that maybe uh, religious people don't look at as super spiritual and He'll use it. But as I was, as I was reading uh, this passage of Scripture this week, I've just been reading about the cross and everything I can read about it. and just I got stuck on this, this, this passage of Scripture. And I just love it at the end whenever Jesus says to the thief on the cross, He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, when we, we hear that word paradise, I don't know, like you, you, it sounds like you're going to a Jimmy Buffett concert or something, right? Cheeseburger in paradise. You just don't, you don't hear the word paradise that often. And you don't even really know what it is. When Jesus says, you're going to be with me today in paradise, I mean, we just sort of guess maybe what it might mean. And anyway, I got stuck on that. But as soon as I heard the word paradise, this song came into my mind. It's not a Christian song, right? It's, it, anybody know the song by Coldplay called Paradise? I got two or three out here that know what I'm talking about. And it's, and it's this song about this young girl that, you know, she's going through difficult times in life. It says that she is, she is um, you know, in the night, the stormy night, she closes her eyes and she dreams of para, para, paradise. Ooh. And that, that was running through my mind all week as I was preparing for this. And I'm imagining paradise. But I'll be honest with you, used to when I struggled with things in life, when I really struggled, and maybe you know about this. Now, personally, I used to use different things. I used to use alcohol and different things to try to help me cope with my struggles. Then when I got saved, what I would literally do in the beginning, I can remember certain times when I was really anxious. I had anxiety problems, stress problems. I would sit and I would imagine the day when all of it was over. When I was with Jesus in paradise, and I would realize there's a day coming when all this is over. And all of a sudden, peace would just overwhelm my soul because I had a hope in something beyond what I was currently struggling with. I would dream of paradise. And in, in probably the most horrific place in Scripture, one of them, a man sitting on a cross and Jesus speaks to him about paradise. And, 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 and for me, that, just, that, that begins to speak volumes to me because I think about the moments in my life when I'm dealing with things and, and, and Jesus points us to something far beyond. He points us to something far greater. And he uses the language of paradise. So that's what I'm going to call this sermon this, this, this morning, the way to paradise, the cross, the way to paradise. Now, the scripture I read to you, they go and they're taking Jesus and they take him to a place called Golgotha or Calvary or the place of the skull. It's all the same language. It means the place of the skull. And it was a place where actually there were people that got crucified all the time up there. Matter of fact, in Jesus' lifespan or just right around the time that Jesus was crucified, they say that probably likely around 30,000 people would have been crucified in that same location. That's a lot of crucifixion going on. Amen? I mean, that's a lot of stuff happening. Now, when Jesus was on the cross at Golgotha, out at Calvary, He hung from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And during that six hours that He hung on the cross, He spoke seven statements. 
Now, what I read to you revealed two of the statements that Jesus spoke while He was on the cross. But here's what's so special about the statements that Jesus speaks. Is that when Jesus speaks on the cross, you have to understand something. That the cross is such an excruciating form of torment that when you're nailed and you're hanging there, it actually paralyzes your diaphragm and your pectorals so that you're hanging there and you can't catch your breath. How you die from crucifixion is asphyxiation. You, you drown in your own fluid in your lungs. It's a slow, torturous process. And you feel the pain of hanging there while you're doing it. And really the only way you can speak, historians would say that for the most part, men couldn't speak on the cross. They would just sort of holler out and, and moan and they would spit from a, on occasion. But it was so difficult for them to get any kind of words out. What they would literally have to do is shift all their weight onto their feet in which there were nails at the time. You can imagine that. And then push their weight up, and which Jesus would have had to slide his wounded back up the splintered cross in order to just lift himself up high enough to get oxygen into his lungs because words are created through air coming out of the lungs, moving through the vocal cords and functioning with a bunch of muscles in your mouth to form words. And if you don't have air, you can't speak. And he had to lift himself up and go through that pain just so he could say some things. And he makes seven statements. He's doing a perfect work. Seven is the number of perfection. He is doing a perfect work. He is doing a complete work. A work that we don't have to add to. And, in, and just to signify it and settle it, he makes seven statements to seal this perfection. And I'm going to deal with, with, with two of the first ones. But we know the story here. The background for this is that Jesus was at the Last Supper with his disciples. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas, one of the twelve disciples, a man that he'd been with for three years, comes up and betrays him, gives him a kiss on the cheek and, and the Roman soldiers know, well, this is the one that we're after because he told us. He sold him for 30 pieces of silver and he said, the one that I kissed, that's the one. And they come and they arrest him. And they begin to take him away. All of the disciples abandon him. He's going in now to, to Caiaphas, the high priest. And listen, they're doing illegal trials. They don't have anybody to accuse him. They're actually looking for someone to bear false witness, the Scripture says. And they look for people and they can't find anybody really to bear false witness against the man. And finally, somebody comes in and says, yeah, I heard him say something. I heard him say that he'd tear down the temple and raise it up in three days. And Caiaphas says, what do you say to that, my man? He said, I adjure you by God, according to Old Testament law, that you, you, you answer me. And according to law, Jesus had to do it because guess what? Jesus didn't break the law. He completed the law and died in our place, those who broke the law. So he answered him, he said, it is as you say, and you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. And he tore, the high priest tore his garments and said, what do we have anything else to say here to him? He's a blasphemer. He deserves death. And they begin to beat him. They put a, a, a thing on his head to cover his head and they begin to hit him and say, prophesy to us who hit you. And then, of course, when he couldn't guess, they would hit him again and they'd start playing games with him. And then they knew that they couldn't put him to death because they were under Roman rule. So what did they do? They sent him to Pilate. And Pilate is there, and Jesus comes in, and Pilate's wife has had a dream about Jesus. And Pilate's wife says, listen, don't deal with that man. He's a just man, and I, I had a dream. I'm worried about it. I don't want you to deal with this man. And Pilate's all tore up, and he's talking to Jesus about what is truth. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? And he's asking them all these questions, and Jesus doesn't have a lot to say. But he says, it is as you say. I am the king. And he's dealing with all this, and so finally Pilate says, look, 
He comes out before all the people and he says, look, I don't, I don't, I don't want to kill this man. I'm, I, I, find, I find no guilt in him. I wash my hands of this. And he said, at one point, he said, so, so I'm going to give you a compromise. I'm going to send him to be whipped. And he sends him and he's beaten with a cat of nine tails. And he's beaten at this point where honestly it would have killed any normal person. But Jesus chooses to hold back death so that he could suffer the full penalty of the cross. And after they've beaten him, they put a, a purple robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They begin to mock him and bow to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, because they knew that was his crime. They bring him back before Pilate, and Pilate says, Man, they beat him to death. Hopefully that shall suffice them. They'll let, let him live. But they cried out, Crucify him. Pilate says, No, I've got to figure out a different way to do this. And, and Pilate says, All right, look, uh, you know, I get to release the prisoner. So who do, I want, who do you want me to release? Do you want me to release to you? Jesus or Barabbas? You know, he did it like that, I imagine, because he wanted them to pick Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer, but they said, hey, let, let Barabbas go, crucify Jesus. And they took him, and as he's going, he's carrying this cross that would have been 75 to 100 pounds, and he can barely carry it. And this man named Simon the Cyrenian, he begins to help Jesus carry this cross, and he's coming up to the cross and he's beginning to speak. And once he gets to the cross and they're all mocking him and they've nailed it into his hands and his feet and he begins to bleed for us, he begins to speak the first words. And the first words that he speaks from the cross, and I believe it's significant, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's my first point, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the gateway to paradise. Forgiveness is the gateway to paradise. The first words that Jesus says are super powerful, and I believe it's showing us something because forgiveness is the gateway to reconciliation with God. That's where it all begins. And in our own lives, in order to experience inner healing and transformation, forgiveness is the gateway to all of those things in our lives. A lot of times people are struggling with different things on, on the inside of them and they're struggling with all sorts of different ramifications in their life. But the truth is when it comes right down to it, they've not entered the door to what I would say ends up being paradise because they've not really understood what forgiveness truly is. Now, there's a lot of different things that we need in the world. Y'all would all agree with that. You would say, well, I need money, and we need hospitals, and we need marriage counseling. We, we need all of these different things in our lives. But the greatest need that we have in our lives and the greatest need of every human being on the planet is forgiveness. Because you can come before God with every other thing, but if you have not experienced the forgiveness of God, it's all lost. Nothing matters. Nothing matters anymore. Forgiveness is essential. Now, when he says, Father, forgive them, who's he speaking about? Is he speaking about the Jewish leaders that, that just would not have it any other way than for him to die? Was he speaking about uh, Pilate who ended up compromising and allowing them to be crucified? Was he speaking about the disciples who fled? Was he speaking about the Roman soldiers who put the nails in his feet? Yes, he was speaking about all of them, but you know who else he was speaking about when he was on the cross? He was speaking about me. He was talking about me. And it's so interesting because when we read the stories of the Bible, I do this sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? Like you read a story in the Bible and you read the Pharisee and the Pharisee's being goofy and you're like, man, them religious Pharisees, you know what I'm talking about? They're just awful. And, you, and we like to associate ourselves with Jesus. You know, the truth is we're rarely Jesus in the Scripture. We're pretty much almost always the Pharisee or the Roman soldier 
or the Jewish leader or the disciples that fled. But we like to look at it and say, Pharisees. When in all reality, we do the same things they do all the time. See, Jesus wasn't just saying forgive them. He was saying forgive clay. Forgive them. For they, they do not know what they're doing. Now here's something that's so interesting. Jesus prayed the prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in one fell swoop, He answered His prayer immediately by becoming the sacrificial lamb. He, he traded it just like that. And He became the sacrificial lamb. Now let me tell you something. This is what I, what I notice about people. They, and this is how I know that people do not get a revelation of the cross. It's because guilt is an idol that some people simply won't give up. They don't, they don't, and, and how I know, they fully do not realize what has happened to them on the cross, and guilt is an idol that they don't give up. They assume that God is so angry at them and mad at them for their past that He doesn't want to look at them, He doesn't want to have anything to do with them, and what you do when you do that, and you continue to carry your guilt thinking you're helping God out, is you insult God because you live as if the cross was not significant enough to wash away your sin. And God says, you have no right to carry this sin anymore. If I carried it in my own body on the cross and I bled, and while I bled, after you crucified me, after you spat on me, after you mocked me, after you beat me, after you did all those things, and I said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, you are forgiven. And you can no longer carry that guilt. So many people, they, they walk under guilt and shame, and somehow they, they, take, they, they believe it's a righteous thing to continue to hold on to that guilt. It's a righteous thing when you look at the cross and you say, my guilt is gone. I've been washed clean. I have been forgiven by Jesus. See, we have to, we have to do certain things regularly. And here's, here's what I've realized about forgiveness is it's a process. It's an ongoing thing. We have to receive forgiveness from God. We have to forgive ourselves. And then it has to flow through us so that we can forgive others. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. See, He's faithful to do it because He has promised that He would and He is just in doing it because He's already punished your sin on the cross. And all He's asking you to do is come clean and confess. And if you confess, He will forgive you of all sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But see, when we do this, Jesus is not only our sacrifice so that we can have forgiveness, but He's our role model on the cross. There's a, there's a switch here. And people will say, well, you know, Clay, this forgiveness stuff, it's so elementary. It's so elementary. Once you get to the deep stuff, my friend, get to the deep stuff, we're all beyond that. If you're beyond it, how come we ain't learned it yet? Because we, we act like it's elementary, but in our life practice, it's anything but elementary. It's easy to say it and say, well, yeah, everybody knows about forgiveness. Everybody knows God forgives. Everybody knows we're supposed to forgive. But what I see on a day-to-day -day basis is that most people do not practice it. And that's the big issue. And so Jesus says, he says, boys, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to do anything that I didn't do. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount and he says, look, you've heard it said, fellas, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist evil. And if anybody hits you on one cheek, turn to him the other. And Jesus is not saying, now y'all do that, but I ain't going to do that. No, when they hit him on one cheek, he turns to them the other. And then he goes on and he says, now, now you've, you've, also, you've also heard it said to, to hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. Bless those who curse, curse you. Do good to those who hate you. 
How many of you all have ever intentionally practiced doing good to people who hate you? Man, that's a good word this morning, right? You just, I'm ready to shout right now. I mean, doing good to those who hate you. But Jesus is saying this and he's being real with it. But see, the thing about Jesus is, is he sealed with his blood what he preached with his lips. He sealed with his blood what he preached with his lips. He calls us to practice this and then he demonstrates it right in front of us. And he says, look, the same way that you are freely forgiven is the same exact way that I'm asking you to freely forgive. And here's the thing. I'll be honest with you. I don't want God to deal with me as far as forgiveness goes the way that I deal with others. Anybody amen me on that one? Because when people use, people can do very small things to me. Things that are almost insignificant at the end of the day. And, and I, I walk around the rest of the day like, they kill me. You know what I'm talking about? It's just ridiculous. And I let that stuff harbor in my heart. I might even think about it two weeks. You know what I'm talking about? And just let all that junk fester and manifest and become bitterness and then all of a sudden it weasels its way into the church and people are sort of you know uh, divisive and gossip and they say all of these things and you know why it's because at the end of the day you didn't forgive that person you didn't let that person go you held it against them and you can say all you want well I forgive them but no you don't get to add a but onto forgiveness that's what it that's why it's called forgiveness He says, I don't remember it anymore. Yeah, of course you remember some of the things that people have done to you. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, I want you to freely forgive the same way that I have freely forgiven you. I want you to come into that position. Because here's the bigger issue. And most people, again, this this seems elementary. But, you know, we talk about paradise. Why is forgiveness the gateway to paradise? In the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam and Eve, He says to them, and listen, they are in Eden. It's considered paradise. Eden means pleasure. It means paradise. They're in the paradise of God. Perfect communion with God. No sin, no nothing. And all of a sudden, the the serpent comes in. But before the serpent comes in, God gave them a, a commandment. And He said, look, I want you to guard this garden. Don't let anything into it that doesn't need to be. And I want you to cultivate it. In other words, if something grows up that doesn't need to be there, you need to get it removed. And Proverbs 4.23 says, to guard your heart. With all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. And what I'm telling you is that the serpent, you have the potential. What Jesus has done for us on the cross is, is given us the potential to have a paradise on the inside of us. He said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. There's a potential there to live in peace, to live in joy, to live an abundant life, and for that to flow out of you, for rivers of living waters of love to flow out of you continually, for you to have perfect communion with God. But the problem is, is the serpent comes in, and he brings in something foreign that should not be in there, and we allow that bitterness and unforgiveness to take root in our heart, and it contaminates us, and that bitterness begins to spread and to defile. Amen? And he's saying, I need you to uproot that stuff because when we forgive, what happens is it is a process of us actually getting at that hate, getting at that bitterness. When people have hurt us and people have abused us and that pain and that trauma has allowed things to get in, when we forgive them, it is actively taking those things that have taken root in the garden of our heart and uprooting it and saying, Lord, that doesn't, that doesn't get to be there anymore. I'm not going to allow that to live there because I need love in my heart and not hate. And see, Jesus reveals this to an even deeper level because, you know, after they let this into the garden, you know what happens. The first murder takes place in Genesis 4, one chapter later. Their son Cain, he kills his brother Abel. And Cain, he deals with the punishment of his murder. And the punishment was, as God says, look, you're going to wander throughout the, the earth all the days of your life. You're going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. 
And he says, my punishment is more than I can bear, Lord. He said, if anybody sees me, they're going to kill me. And the Lord says, no, vengeance has been unleashed now. Things have changed. Things are shifted. And he said, if anybody does anything to you, they will be avenged sevenfold. Now watch this, because the vengeance does not just stay sevenfold. It continually begins to increase. Cain has a son. He has a son. He has a son. Five generations down the line, this dude named Lamech is born. And Lamech makes this statement in Genesis 4. He says, look, he tells his wife, he says, look, a dude wounded me. In other words, he came up and he hurt me. He might have punched me or something like that. And he said, you know what I did in return? I killed him. And he said, I'll tell you why I killed him. He said, because if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, then I will be avenged 77-fold. Now this begins to make more sense when Jesus says to Peter after Peter, Peter Peter's dealing with Jesus. Jesus is talking to him about forgiveness in and, 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 uh, one of the best chapters in the Bible, Matthew 18, right, Donald? Matthew, we're always trying to get people to do Matthew 18, but they don't like to do it. And Matthew 18 is this. It says... If your brother has anything against you, go to your brother alone. Make it right. Deal with them. Talk to them. Work it out. Reconcile. Forgive one another. Let it go. And if they won't hear you, then take two or three witnesses with you. Try to talk it out. Try to reason with them. Try to love them. If they won't hear you, bring it before the church. And he says, and if they won't hear you then, he says, just just consider them as being lost. Because a saved person will not continue to not hear you. A saved person will forgive and reconcile and move on. Amen. Man, that right there, I about did shout for a second. A saved person will finally come to their wits and say, you're right, we need to let this go. This is ridiculous. We need to forgive one another and reconcile. We can overlook this thing. And then Peter says, all right, but yeah, Lord, come on. Let's be serious. Let's be real. Like, how how many times? Because... I mean, you can only forgive somebody so much, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a time which is too much is too much, and enough is enough. It's foolishness. He says, should I do it seven times, Lord? And the Lord, now referring back to Genesis 4, says, no, 77-fold. He's saying the only way to reverse this, this cycle of vengeance and sin and hatred and retaliation and retribution is the same radical forgiveness that would reverse the way that we retaliated against one another. He's saying if you want to be a Christian and you want to live the Christian life when somebody hurts you, you need to be as radical as Lamech was in the opposite direction. If somebody hurts you, Lamech got hurt and he killed that guy. Jesus is saying, let me show you how radical the difference is. They kill me and I freely forgive them instantly without even a thought. He reverses it. And he says, he says, see, you all think the, he- you think the healing of the world is going to come because when Christians get power over people and we get a- all, the- all of our-, our presidents are Christian and our governors are Christian. Let me tell you something. That's not going to change the world. The only thing that's going to change the world is when Christians begin to demonstrate self-sacrificial love and forgive one another and live the way that they ought to do. See, forgiveness is a supernatural process, and I believe when people forgive that it releases the kingdom of heaven on earth. I believe that with all of my heart. The second point is that the way of the cross is the path to paradise. Jesus is hanging on the cross. We, say, we said that forgiveness is the gateway to paradise. Forgiveness opens the door. We say this a lot, a lot when we're dealing with people that, that need inner healing, when they've been abused, when they've been hurt. Listen, 
Forgiveness is not healing, but it is the gateway to healing. And, and there's inner healing that many of you need, and the reason it's not happening is because you've not yet forgiven the people who have offended you and hurt you, but when you do, it releases those things, and then Jesus can come in and bring the healing that we need. See, that's why it's the gateway, but the way of the cross is the path to paradise. Let me get into this a little bit, because Jesus is hanging on the cross, and it's interesting because He actually, before He went to the cross, said, hey, this is how you're actually going to have to follow Me. Now, it was no secret to the disciples that Jesus was going to die on the cross. In Matthew 16 and in many other places, he tells them over and over again. It says, And he revealed to them how he was going to have to suffer and be turned over to the chief priests and the elders and all these different folks, and he must suffer, be crucified, and died. And when he tells Peter that, you know what Peter says? Far be it from you, Lord. You ain't going to do that. You will not die. Because Peter had a messed up mentality of who Jesus really was. And you know what Jesus says to him? He says, Get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. And again, we like to identify with Jesus at this point, but the truth is you're Peter. And I could, we could reveal it in a million different ways. But we have the same mentality Peter has. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of, of God. You're thinking about the things of man. In other words, he's saying, I know what you're thinking about, Peter. You think the Messiah is a dude that's going to come in here with a sword and with vengeance and destroy the Roman rulership, and release the power, and overcome Caesar, and let Israel be liberated by force. That's what he thinks the Messiah is. But he says, look, you're focused on the things of man. You're focused on power over. You're focused on victory by the sword. When I'm saying that you need to be focusing on victory by self-sacrificial love. Amen? It's not victory by getting power over or self-preservation. See, the world's kingdom is about self-preservation, but the kingdom of the cross is about self-sacrificial love. Now, Peter's all about self-preservation. Anybody in here else? You're about self-preservation, right? You ain't interested in dying. I mean, Donald talks about how we're getting ready to go to Uganda. He talks about going down there where them cannibals are. If we get around them, I'm going to put Donald in front of me. You know what I'm saying? I'm be like, he tastes a lot better than I do. Guaranteed. Why? Because I'm about self-preservation. The kingdom of the world is about self-preservation. But Jesus says, look, Peter. He said, here's what y'all misunderstanding. He says, you're going to have to change the way you think about things because it's not about self-preservation. It's about self-sacrificial love. It's about willing to lay down your life. He says, matter of fact, if any man will follow me, if you really want to follow me, Peter, he says, look at it this way. Here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your own cross, and then you can follow me. See, now, now it's so interesting because Jesus... Jesus could have done anything. He could have overthrown the governments. He could have had 12 legions of angels come down and set up His rule and reign on the earth, but He chose to not. And let me, let me tell you how this works out practically in our life. People in the world should not know that we're Christians by what we vote for. People in the world should know we're Christians by what we bleed for. It, you know, nobody really cares that you vote for traditional marriage. Nobody cares. What people care about is when you love them when they're struggling with their sexual identity 
And that you preach the gospel to them and that you're there for them and that you're willing to walk with them and lead them. People don't care that you're against abortion. What they care about is when a young woman gets pregnant when she's a teenager and she needs help and everybody else has abandoned her and she's ashamed, but you come alongside of her and say, I'll help you take care of the baby. It's not about what you vote for, it's about what you bleed for. It's easy. As Christians, we love to be the ones that are the most righteous and stand up in front of everybody and say, oh, we believe this and we believe that and everybody else is going to hell, praise God. And all of that stuff. But the truth is, Jesus says, no, that is not, that is not the kingdom. That is not the kingdom. And He said, look, I could have went to these prostitutes, I could have went to all these different people and brought judgment upon them, but I came alongside them and I loved them where they were at. And I sacrificed my daily comfort and my daily peace in order to bleed for them, in order to die for them. And guess what? You're in the same group, in the same crew. And as soon as you think you're not, you become a religious Pharisee. You go to the other side. And I think probably in churches... Today, there's more of us that actually would come alongside into that than, than we would into the side of the kingdom of God. Now, now look at this, because Jesus makes it abundantly cl- even more clear. He is in, he's in, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and the, the soldiers come in to arrest Jesus. This, I love this part of the Bible. I don't know why. It's awesome. John 18.10, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says a few different things, you know, because like he's praying... And they're coming to arrest him, but when he stands up, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am. And you know what happened? They all fell down on their face. Boom. In other words, he's saying, look, I created the world, boys. You ain't taking my life. I'm laying it down. <laughs> but then it goes a little further, because now these guys came, come in, and, and, and there's, this, there's this man named Malchus. He's one of the high priest's uh, you know, associates here. And he comes in, and when Peter sees him, Peter draws the sword. And swipes, I believe he's probably trying to go at his neck at least or right through the center of his head. He's trying to kill him, I'm thinking. But he misses and cuts his ear off. Now, here's the thing. Once again, Jesus looks to Peter and he says, Look, put away the sword. He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. He's saying the kingdom of God doesn't operate like the kingdom of the world operates. We're not going to make Christians by going to war with people. He's saying we have to think about things differently here. And, and he, look, Jesus could have used his divine authority to do anything at that point. He even said, Peter, do you not know that if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels and they would be here right now to make every one of these men subservient and arrest every one of these men and I could do whatever I wanted? He said, but it's, it's different. You need to look at things different. And what he did instead was he used his divine authority to take that man's ear off the ground and heal it. It's a totally different way of thinking. He reverses everything. And he says, then, then he says to us, look, you need to take up your own cross. Maybe that's the worst thing we could ever hear. Because the cross is about official opposition. You take up your cross. Guess what? People are going to oppose you. People are going to be against you. They're going to stand in your way. There's going to be shame. People are going to mock you on the cross. They're going to say you're foolish. They're going to call you an idiot. There's going to be suffering in your life because you follow Jesus. And ultimately, guess what? You might even have to die for Jesus. And Jesus says, are you ready to do that? Are you ready to take up your cross? And He says, but here's where you get it wrong, Peter. Is you think in this self-preservation that when you seek to save your life, you're doing something good. He says, but if you seek to save your life in the end, you'll lose it. 
He said, you want to find true joy, you want to find true peace and true fulfillment, you need to set aside your own comfort, your own life, and you need to be willing to lose your life, and then you'll find it. And that's a hard word for us, right? Because we're, it's all about me, what I feel like today, what I want, what I need. And Jesus is saying, every day you need to learn to deny yourself and take up your own cross and follow me. See, focusing on others is the key to suffering victoriously. A lot of people are depressed. A lot of people are frustrated. And oftentimes, I find this out in my own life. You know when I get the most depressed and the most hung up and the most frustrated is when I'm focused on myself. Anybody amen me on that? You get so self-absorbed in my comfort. Well, I don't ever get my time and me. And, and, all, and all of a sudden, you get frustrated and depressed. And Jesus is saying, well, that's because you were never meant to be focused inwardly. You were meant to be self-sacrificially denying yourself so that others might find life. And if you would begin focusing on others a little bit more, no matter what kind of suffering you were going through, there would be great joy in your heart because you knew that you'd be doing it for me and my blessing and my favor and my spirit would be upon your life because you would be going the way of the cross. The way of the cross is the path to paradise. The way of the cross is the path to true inner fulfillment and joy. Some people say, well, I just don't know what the will of God is. If you quit focusing on yourself and God's will for you. Look, God's will for you is for others. It's for others. It's for your life to be poured out for others. In Luke 23, verses 35 Through 37, it says, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. He saved others, let him save himself. See, the irony is is that in order to save us, he could not save himself. And Jesus made no shortcuts in saving us. And sometimes in order to save others... You have to focus on not saving yourself. You have to focus on laying something down in your own life in order that others might be saved. And Jesus says this, and they say He saved others. Jesus took no shortcuts. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but one scholar said that they offered Jesus wine twice, and that is in the Scripture. And the first time that they offered to Him, it was wine mixed with myrrh, and it was designed to dull the pain. And Jesus denied it. Why? Because He wanted to feel the full You want to take on the full pain. And then later at the end, they were saying, let's see if he'll call Elijah down and have Elijah save him. And they offered him sour wine. And this was made to bring an alertness to you so that it would prolong the pain. And that wine he drank. So that the pain would be prolonged. He made no shortcuts in saving us. See, and when you are inconvenienced, I want you to think about this because, you know, I know know even church inconveniences you sometimes. Anybody amen me right quick? And all the things that the church is doing, it's an inconvenience and there's inconveniences. And You know, when we go out and we serve people at Bridge Street, it's an inconvenience. I mean, dang. I mean, how many things you got to ask me to do, folks? Jeez. I mean, seriously. But when we're inconvenienced, but all of a sudden we learn to care more about other people than our own selves, we begin to discover what paradise is really all about we begin to discover what it means to be like Jesus. And Jesus is the one hurting, suffering, being mocked. But he realizes that they're in worse shape than he's in. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, he was able to go through suffering and go through discomfort and go through pain and go through an inconvenience. It was an inconvenience to carry a cross up that hill that day, I can tell you. 
He said, I was willing to go through a little bit of inconvenience because there was a greater joy that was set before me. He looked beyond the cross and He saw you and I forgiven, cleansed, washed, redeemed, living out life abundantly and full, transformed and changed, experiencing joy, and ultimately around the throne of God, worshiping Him forever and ever and ever in paradise with Him. And He said, boys, I will endure the cross for the joy that is set before me. And every time you're going through a difficult time, every time you're suffering, just know that there is a joy that has been set before you. When God calls you and says, I need you to lay down your life and experience a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of inconvenience so that others might be better off, there's a joy set before you. Your reward is not in this life. And as long as you intend to save your life and stay comfortable in this life, He says you're going to lose it. But if you will give up your comfort and your way and you will carry your cross and you will follow Me and you will deny yourself, in the end you're going to find paradise. And there's going to be a reward so far greater than anything you could have ever received on this earth. He's going to say, you're going to, you're going to wish you'd done it. You're going to wish you had taken that cross. As bad as it hurt, as much discomfort, as much pain as there was, you are going to wish that you had taken up that cross, that you had truly followed me. See, he gets up there and he's hanging with criminals on each side of him. And in verse 39, it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. See, at the end of the day, you've got a dying Savior in the middle. You've got a dying sinner on one hand, and then you have a dying saint on the other. And they're all side by side. And Jesus was dying on another man's cross. Now, I just read this recently. I thought it's a, I'll give you a fun fact, right? So you can tell people that you, you got a fun fact. You know Dismas Charities down here, right? Dismas. I, I, I walked by that. I thought, Dismas? What in the world's Dismas mean? I, I knew there was something to it, so I got, in, I got into looking, looking into it. And here's, here's what I found out. Is that Barabbas, the guy that was standing by Jesus, he was leading a revolt and he had killed some people. But Barabbas had a group of followers, and two of these followers were named Dismas and Gestus. Interesting, right? And so Dismas and Gestus, they had only stolen some things, but Barabbas had killed some folks. And Barabbas was getting ready to be hung with Dismas and Gestus, who were the two guys on each side of Jesus. And Barabbas, though, on the other hand, was released. Can you imagine being on the cross because you stole some stuff? but yet Barabbas got off scot-free, and now Jesus is hanging in the middle. They knew, they understood that. They knew Barabbas should be right there. It's a perfect picture of substitution. I should have been on that cross, but Jesus got on it for me. And I mean, I imagine these guys were upset. You know, there's a place in Matthew where it says both of these guys joined in with everybody else, and for a moment it says that both the criminals on each side were saying, yeah, if you are the Christ, save yourself, dude. I mean, come on. And they're just mad, and they're spitting, they're cussing, they're angry. I probably would have been too. I mean, you're up there on the cross. Barabbas should be there. I just stole some stuff. He killed some guys. And I would be upset too. And they're hollering at Jesus. But something happens. Something happens midway through this. And Dismas... Dismas changes his mindset all of a sudden. Dismas, at some point, while he's blaspheming Jesus alongside of Gestus and the chief priests and everybody down there at the bottom, while, while, while he's doing this, all of a sudden there's a shift in his mindset. 
And he comes to a totally different place. And while he's doing this, finally, I don't know, it might, it might have been while he was watching Jesus hang on that cross and he saw what they were doing to him and he knew that Barabbas should be there and he realized Jesus took his place. And here's what I know though. He could have read and he, what he would have read on the sign above him is this is the king of the Jews. Because they put that in three different languages right above his head. And the reason they put it there was because they would put whatever, whatever crime you had committed, they would put it above your head as a deterrent. And the Romans were hardcore. Like if you stole something, they put thief over your head in, in order for all that bypassed to see this man hanging and say, you steal something, we're going to hang you, bro. That's hardcore. So they said, this man blasphemed. He said he's the king of the Jews. That's what he's hanging there for. But they say, the chief priests even agree. They say, hey, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? And I believe maybe Dismas was saying to himself, he, he did save others. Now I remember, I remember when that, that blind dude came to him that time and all of a sudden, he left seeing. I remember that when that woman with the issue of blood pressed through the crowd and she just touched his garment and, and, and she was healed and things changed. I remember when some of these things happened. I remember when, when that woman, uh, she came, the widow, she came and she wanted her son. She, he had died and Jesus went and raised him from the dead. I remember when Lazarus was dead and everybody knew who Lazarus was, but all of a sudden Jesus went out there four days after he had died and said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came out and the word spread. He did save others. Maybe, maybe Dismas for just a minute said, you know what, I'm sitting here on the cross. What have I got to lose, boys? What have I got to lose? He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You talk about a 180. A man that was just blaspheming Jesus, all of a sudden, in an instant, his heart turns. And really, this is the perfect picture of salvation, isn't it? One person that we started out blaspheming, all of a sudden, we do a 180 turn. And we say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We confess him as Lord. We ask him to remember us. But here's the other thing that Dismas did is he came clean. You know what I'm saying? He tells Gestus on the other side, he says, he rebukes him. He says, listen, Gestus, he said, you know what we've done. We deserve this, but this man's done nothing wrong. He confessed his sins. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he makes this last ditch effort. But you know what that says to me? It says to me that there are no hopeless cases. There are absolutely no hopeless cases. Look, there are, I know a handful of people that have gotten saved recently, and I'm just like, you know what? I mean, but, but here's the truth. You, you probably ask my stepmom, my dad down there. I mean, if they'd have ever really thought that I'd be in the position that I'm in today, they would have, I'm going to say they'd probably say no. You know what I'm saying? I was a, it seemed like maybe I was possibly a hopeless case. There are a lot of hopeless cases out there, at least seemingly. But I'm telling you that there are no hopeless cases with Jesus. There are no hopeless cases. In a moment of time, everything can change. And we need to stick around and continue to believe that. And Jesus responds to him the last statement that he makes. He says, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, when we talk about paradise, really what we're talking about is heaven, right? But I just love that word, paradise. And, and, and here's the first thing that we know about heaven and paradise is that it is certain. Jesus starts it out with assuredly. And when Jesus says assuredly on front of something, it's because he's trying to say, I mean this. I ain't playing with y'all. Like in Clay County vernacular, it's, it, it's, it means you can take that to the bank, son. You know what I'm saying? When, when somebody says that, you know, oh, that's true. He said it. He said you can take it to the bank. It's good. You, you just know. He said assuredly. And we, we don't have a word like that, but it, it's like a confirmation number. He says amen. 
It is faithful and it is true and it is certain. See, because Jesus, He said, I say, Jesus is the guarantor of the promise. He's the one who guarantees it. He says, look, don't just think about paradise as a figment of your imagination. You're going to be with me today in paradise. It's certain. See, us as Christians, we think about heaven, but I don't believe we're rooted into it. And the Scripture says in Hebrews 6.19 that this hope that we have is an anchor for our soul. Because what we know is that Jesus has went before us and pierced through the veil and went to heaven. And the Scripture says that He is our forerunner, having gone in before us. And He said this. He said, hey, guys, don't let your heart be troubled. He said, but you believe in God, believe also in me, because in my Father's house there are many mansions. And if I go, I will go and prepare a place for you, and I will return to you so that you will and receive you unto myself that you would be with me. He's given us a promise. He says, paradise is certain. Don't worry about it. It is certain for us. But also paradise, heaven, it's near. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that means that it's not, a, it's not a far journey. Because we know that the Jewish day ends at 6. Jesus died at 3. So the longest it could be would be 3 hours. But I'm going to say that paradise is instant at death for the Christian. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I know people disagree with that on different things. And that's fine, whatever. You know what? You can still be brothers and sisters in Christ and disagree on some things from time to time. Amen. Praise the Lord. And we'll forgive one another and overlook one another's offenses on occasion or all the time. It's today. And my third thing, here's my last thing. Paradise is being with Jesus. Paradise is being with Jesus. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. I hear, I hear preachers say all the time, you know, well, I can't wait to walk the streets of gold. Somebody give me a key of E up here right quick. <clears throat> and you know what? That's going to be exciting. Heaven is going to be beyond what we can understand. But personally, I believe that it's likely that the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and all those things, those are probably metaphorical for something that we can't even imagine. Because we could probably make a street of gold, but it wouldn't be that cool. But when you get to heaven, he's just saying there are things there that you don't fully understand yet. There's things there that I can only give you some metaphors for. Because once you get there, you ain't even going to believe what you see. And, And the reason we know that for sure is because Paul, he actually talks about paradise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you could put that up there right quick. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, I think he's talking about himself. He says, whether in the body or... I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know. God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Then he says, next verse. Got that next one? And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Now listen to what he says this last verse. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is, it is not lawful. For a man to utter. He's basically saying, look boys, I went up there and saw things that if I spoke, words would never be able to do it justice and therefore I cannot speak about it. He said, you just can't, you, you're not, you're not going to be able to grasp it. It's beyond what you can fathom and it's better than anything you can imagine and it's a place called paradise. See, there's another place that paradise is mentioned. It's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. Revelation 2.7 says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. See, it seems 
when the Old Testament saints died. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Because Jesus says to the man on the cross, He says, today you will be with me in paradise. It seems that when Old Testament saints died, they went to a place called Sheol. And Sheol was a place for the dead. It was the grave. It was the dead. It's like, like, like even when David prophesied in, in, in Psalm 16, he said, you will not allow his, his soul to, to, to see corruption. And he uses the language of Sheol. Sheol. And Sheol is the, it's the place of the dead. The Bible says that when Jesus died, he descended before he ascended. He didn't just go straight up to heaven. It says he descended into the lower parts of the earth. He told some men, he said, hey, just the same way that Jonah was three days in the belly belly of the well, I shall be three days in the heart of the earth. What he was saying is, I'm going to the place of the dead. In other words, in the Old Testament, the belief is, and we can't be sure, so if I'm off and you're a theologian, we'll talk about it later. But at the same time, he says he descended into the lower part, he descended into Sheol, And he goes down there into Sheol and he tells that man, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now Sheol, it it, it seems that there were two compartments to it. On one side there was hell where there was torment. And on the other side there was paradise where the righteous dead were. And the Bible calls this Abraham's bosom. Now if anybody told me that, I'd be like, yeah, I don't think I want to go there. That don't sound good at all. Abraham's bosom? What are you talking about? But really what he's saying is, He's saying, look, y'all know where Abraham is because he's your father. And you know you want to be where he's at and you want to be by his shoulder. You want to be resting with him. You want to be next to him. And Jesus even tells a parable about a rich man in Lazarus where there's a man that's in the fiery torment and fixed across the gulf there's this paradise. So in Sheol, the wicked dead were in one place in torment and the other place was paradise. And in that day, I believe that Jesus, I believe that Jesus when he died on the cross, that his spirit, he descended into Sheol and he ripped the gates off of that place. And he said, Satan no longer has the power of death because I've entered into death. Satan no longer has the power of the grave because I have entered into the grave. And I believe that he began to preach the gospel to those people that were in paradise. And he said, look, I know in the Old Testament, Abraham, just as you were the father of faith, and just as these people lived a righteous life, but the reason they lived the righteous life according to Hebrews chapter 11 was because they had faith. And they were waiting to be perfected with those New Testament saints that would believe in Jesus. And listen, there are some crazy scripture in Matthew 27 verses 51 through 53 because it says that when Jesus died, there was an earthquake and the veil was torn. And listen to this, it says the graves were opened and many of the righteous dead saints were raised from the grave after Jesus' resurrection. That means that He so blew up Sheol that people that were in paradise were released. People were released. And it says that they appeared to many in Jerusalem. Old Testament saints appeared. I believe he went down there and he he, he preached to Abraham. He preached to Esther. He preached to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and David. And he says, y'all might as well get your bags packed because paradise is getting ready to get relocated. Paradise is getting ready to be with God in the third heaven. And he says, because let me tell you something. Paradise is not so much a place as paradise is a person. He said, you've been waiting. You've been waiting all these years since you died. And now the place, the place only symbolized what you were really going to see. And what you really were going to see was me. I am paradise. Jesus is paradise. Man, ooh. Jesus is paradise. Paradise is being with Jesus. Y'all can come to the music.
I imagine, I imagine Dismas being down there. Listen, imagine this dude. This dude just got saved. You know, and it's important to notice not only what Jesus said. He made these two statements on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. It's important not only to notice what Jesus said, but what he didn't say. You know, somebody, I got in a conversation with somebody the other day, and they, they believe that there's no way anybody could go to heaven if they're not baptized. It's just an impossibility. And I said, well, what about the thief on the cross? I said, you know, he didn't have time. Well, he just had to have been baptized then before he actually got on the cross. I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Listen, we are saved by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you know what? I would like to put more requirements on you, but if I did, I would be falling away from the gospel of grace. And there is one requirement, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. And when this man turned to say, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus did not turn around from it to him and say, well, if you keep the commandments for these next ten minutes, then you can make it. He didn't say any of that. He didn't say, boy, somebody get a water hose and spray him down because he can't go in when he ain't baptized. He didn't say any of that stuff. We get so legalistic sometimes that it about drives me bad. <laughs> he didn't say anything. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Then some people say, yeah, but Clay, you know, some people say they believe and they don't change. Let me tell you something. The only real evidence for true faith is a transformed life. If you say you believe and your life hasn't changed, you need to come back to the cross. You need to come back to the cross. When we truly believe in Jesus, something begins to change on the inside of us. It produces transformative grace. We access transformative grace when we believe. See, this man didn't do anything. He didn't do anything for God. And that runs against our nature. It does, doesn't it? Runs against our nature. But I believe this is why Jesus said, look, you know, many will come. He said in Matthew 8, he said, many will come from the north and the south, east and west. They'll come and they'll sit beside Abraham, Father Abraham in the kingdom. He said, and the sons of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. And this is the language that he used when he said, many who are last shall be first and many who are first shall be last. I believe Dismas was down there. He was saying, boys, I don't deserve to be here. This David's over there. You see Esther right here. There's there's Jeremiah the prophet. I don't deserve to be here among them. But Jesus says, many that are last shall be first and many that are first shall be last. He said, you know what? All you righteous Pharisees, what you think is that you're going to be sitting there in the kingdom. What you're going to find out is that there were some prostitutes that realized they were broken and repented and turned to me. And they're sitting in the highest position of honor in the kingdom of heaven in paradise. And some of you religious Pharisees are going to be cast into outer darkness. Man, he turned everything on his head, didn't he? I love that about Jesus. But you know, it's dangerous to delay when, whenever Jesus is calling, when the Spirit's calling. People will actually say, well, you know, I, I still want to spend some time and do some things in life that I haven't done. Because what I can do is I can do what I want to do and then at the end of my life, I'll just be like the guy beside Jesus on the cross. And my question to you would be, which one? Because if you resist the Spirit now, there's no guarantee that your heart won't become hardened and you'll be like that other man on the cross 
He saw Jesus, Gesta saw Jesus the same way Dismas did. But yet he didn't repent. He didn't turn. And it's so important that you don't delay. No matter what the Spirit of God is asking you to do, that when the Spirit of God is calling upon your heart that you respond, that you make that response. Why don't you just bow your head with me for a moment? Now, the Lord's likely dealing with people on different levels, but we always want to give everybody an opportunity. If, if, if the Lord's dealing with your heart this morning and, and you say, I need to respond to Jesus and I need to respond for salvation. Either, either I need to be saved or I need to come back to the foot of the cross and just remember who I am. Remember what Jesus has done for me. If that's you, you want to exercise faith. And it's really, it's, it, this is really just an act of faith to raise your hand. That's all it is. It just... Just to say, yeah, I'm agreeing with that. Won't you just lift your hand and let me know in this place this morning? I see you. Anybody else? Now let me ask you this second thing. How many of you, you know that there's a place in your heart where you need to forgive? You need to let somebody go. You need to walk that out. You need to release somebody. And then even maybe the most challenging call of the Spirit is, are you willing to take up your own cross and deny yourself? find this path to paradise are you willing to deny yourself leave your own comfort in order that others might be better off so if that spoke to any of you i want to sit let's just pray right quick for those of you let's, let's just pray together whatever your need is father right now we come to you and we open our heart to you and we thank you lord jesus that on the cross that on the cross you gave that promise today you will be with me in paradise and we know that it's only by your finished work that we're saved. We can't save ourselves, Lord. We can't earn it. But we believe in you, Jesus, and we trust you. And God, we, we own up to our sins right now. Just like he did on the cross, God, we're guilty. And we, we confess that. We confess that we are sinners, but we are so thankful, God, that you died in our place. And we confess our sins and we receive your forgiveness in our lives from all of our sins. And we believe that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And God, we forgive ourselves for the things that we've done. But Lord, we don't just leave it there. We forgive others who have hurt us and we release them right now. And God, we make a choice right now, a conscious decision to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow you. And we ask for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do that with all of our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, stand to your feet. We're going to spend and take just a, a moment of time to spend some time in worship. But I, I just ask if you would, why don't you gather around this altar? Why don't you take some time to commit your heart to the Lord? To say, Lord, I, I, I need to commit myself to you. I need to learn what it means to take up my cross and deny myself. Lord, would you help me? Would you strengthen me? Would you get me through this? If you need prayer for anything, allow us to pray with you. We'd love to.